Well, thank you again, Pastor Everett. I appreciate your kindness and uh, words of introduction. I did note this time you said I had a desire to be a blessing to you. I hope I am a blessing to you. I just wanted to help serve uh, your church family with that wonderful provision you've made for Pastor Van and Janet to be away. And uh, in their absence, I know that lots has gone on. This weekend has been a real blessing to me. I know that lots of folk have had a part in it, but the one I've had the most contact with has been Pastor Everett. Thank you for your kindness. And you know, he, he fixes a mean breakfast, too, if you're ever hungry some morning. <laughs> just stop in and he'll fix you, right? You, you promise to do that, sir? Okay, that's an obligation now he's under. But, uh, what's that? Oh, at their own risk. Okay, so but uh, enjoyed the fellowship. And it's been a privilege to reconnect with the Gales again. Uh, they've had a part in our lives in more ways than just casually. They've had a part in our one son, uh, Peter's life, as he spent a summer there uh, and was with them during that time as he was exploring the possibility of medical missions. God chose another direction for him, but has real just warm regards for that time. And thank you for your investment in his life. And and so it's a real joy to see them again. And Peter's a first-time connection. I don't have your accent. I'm going to try it anyway, buddy. So uh, how are you all doing or whatever you say. <laughs> poor, poor exchange, but a uh, blessing to have you. And God bless you as you serve in a country that's so desperately in need of the gospel. And uh, I don't mind saying a few years ago, our board graciously made arrangements for my wife and me to spend uh, some place that we wanted to visit as just a, a gift of recognition for years of service. And so we chose England and had a wonderful three-week time there of a week in London and then spent uh, two weeks driving on the wrong side of the road in bed and breakfast all across England and Scotland. It was an experience I will never forget. And so a real privilege, but sense the darkness spiritually. And thank you for serving there. God bless you as you do that. Even if you have to lead songs that people don't know, I appreciate that. <laughs> Randy, I don't know if he probably stepped out. He's already put up with me a couple times, so uh, appreciate Oh, there you are, Randy. I'm sorry, I didn't turn far enough. But uh, Randy's one of our grads. Praise the Lord for his faithful testimony and uh, trust that God will continue to use you as you rescue children from the darkness of sin. I appreciate that. So, I hope you'll take a few moments. I know this service, as it concludes, is pretty much the exit to the dinner line. But uh, the displays that are out there with the missionaries that are here and our display there as well, I would invite you to just pause there briefly and uh, take note. These are days that are exciting to serve God. And just this one quick note, uh, I do believe that one of the most underutilized resources available to us is prayer. Uh, I don't mind saying that all of us have equal access to God. Sometimes I find myself having to sort of condition persons' request of me. They'll say at a service or something. If you say this, please know I will be responsive and meaningfully responsive. But they'll act as though I have some kind of inside track on God in my prayer life. And so they'll say, would you be sure and pray about this? And, and I take that genuinely as a request that comes from a heart that wants someone to pray. And maybe out of a sense of saying that maybe I give my life more to prayer because of my occupation than others. But aren't you glad every Christian has equal access to God? Prayer is a wonderful resource. And I'm personally convinced it's the most underutilized resource that we have. We have infinite ability to, to touch God's uh, supply of, of provision in, in prayer. 
And so one of the things you'll find on our table out there are a couple of items I'd like you to especially take note of. One is a prayer calendar. It's designed to have specific students. In fact, if you look in that calendar, you'll find Pastor Van in there because there's a picture of our board. You'll find uh, Jonathan in there. He's one of our current students. But uh, pictures of uh, or names of all of our students and staff through the course of the year are spread throughout those 12 months for prayer, along with items of activities on our campus. I would love to have you join in specific prayer prayer each month. Uh, you'll note that those are noted as uh, requiring $10 for purchase. That's not to really purchase the calendar. It's an opportunity for you to participate in helping with scholarships for students at our Ladies Auxiliary who prepare this calendar. It's a group of just volunteer ladies. You ladies could be a part of that. It'd be a joy to have you join. They have a conference every summer and activities throughout the year a couple times. But they provide the production of that calendar. And then they sell those with intent to provide scholarships to students. So that's one item for prayer that I'd like to encourage you to take note of and participate in that. And then there's a little card back there as well. Uh, that card is such that uh, looks something like this. It's just a little small card with a provision that says, President's Prayer Partners. And the intent behind that is to give you a chance to, every week, if you will give us your email address, I will send you Saturday morning a very short prayer devotional, and then just some requests for that next week to be praying about. Uh, we started this about a year and a half ago with a, with a goal of having at least 700 persons praying every day for our, or every week for our ministry. And uh, quite honestly, we underestimated the response because this was a goal that was supposed to be reached by the year 2020. It's part of our 2020 vision long range plan. And uh, lo and behold, within a matter of a year, or a little better than a year's time, we've already exceeded 700 persons in membership to that. We've changed that goal now to 1,400 by the year 2020. Might still be too modest. I'm not afraid to change it later if we reach that. But the long and the short of it is, this is a chance to just have folk join in prayer. And as I've said through these first two services, I'm so thrilled to say to you as a church family, somewhere across the world, because there are people all around the world as a part of this team, Somewhere across the world, there are 700 plus people praying right now for this service or have prayed for this service. Because number one request this week was pray as I minister at the World Missions Weekend at Fellowship Bible Church in Shenandoah Junction, West Virginia. And people are praying for us. And so I invite you to be a part of that. Give us your email address. If you don't use email, there's a provision for you to give your snail mail address, as they call it. And uh, we'll send a monthly update for you by way of mail uh, through the regular postal system. And so we'd love to have you be a part of that to the praise of the Lord. I am uh, honored to share in what I consider to be one of the most significant moments in your church's history. Not because I'm here, but because the cause of missions is the task of the church. It's our mandate. And so World Missions Weekend is not just a calendar event. It's the evidence of your existence that must be there. And so I'm so thrilled to be a part of that. And I love the focus that has been given for this week uh, by way of the verse of Scripture. If you saw the banner out in the hallway up on the wall, this verse was portrayed there in Scripture. But I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, where that verse of Scripture is noted. Verse 7, as you're turning there, this particular passage of Scripture comes in the book of Isaiah at a time that is pretty significant to what we recognize as one of the more notable chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. 
that great chapter that describes the suffering of the Lord Jesus, our description, all we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, he's turned everyone. Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That great verse of scripture. Uh, celebrating not only his salvation work for us, but his guaranteed sovereign rule as king someday. And preface to that is chapter 52 of Isaiah. This chapter becomes a chapter that is particularly focused on God's guaranteed future for his people Israel. I'm here to tell you without any apology or, or conditions of terms, God is someday going to restore Israel and there will be a literal thousand year millennial reign. And if you don't believe that, you're wrong. Okay? And if you don't like that, you're still wrong. <laughs> okay? I don't say that vainly or arrogantly. I say it biblically. And anybody, I don't care how famous their voice might be or how many books they've written, if they don't believe in that, they're wrong. The Bible is guaranteed a future for Israel. And chapter 52 describes that. It's God's glorious kingdom. And so when we come to verse 7, contextually it's in the context of Israel's future, but very appropriate to describing our task in this cause of world mission mandate. And so verse 7, if you'll follow, reads, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Isaiah the prophet, giving those words in a measure of predictive facet, was also describing without apology what was going to literally happen. In the midst of all that verse is a reference that we would probably not on our own use. And that is its glorifying feet. Few of us go about boasting about our feet. We sometimes even apologize for our feet. We sometimes try to maybe make them obscure. Feet aren't what you show off. It's not even what you necessarily claim as an identity of, you know, importance or beauty. Someone's face might be beautiful. Someone's eyes might be beautiful. Someone's hair might be beautiful. Someone might have, you know, a physique that we say is admirable. But rarely do you say, look at their feet. And yet that's what the scriptures uses to amplify our responsibility in world mission mandate. I'd like to describe just for a moment that illustration of feet. Here's this passage. How beautiful are the feet. Five, I think, symbolic identities with feet that I'd like you to capture as we think of the illustration of our world mission mandate. Symbolic reference number one. Feet remind us of humility. Feet remind us of humility. Would you say that word with me? Humility. One more time. Humility. We all recall, or many of us recall, that very familiar passage in John chapter 13, where Jesus exercises the act of humility, which is still celebrated as one of the hallmarks. It's one of the distinctives of our ministry as we focus upon developing servants for the Lord. And so that we have as a part of our graduation exercise every spring, what we call the issuance of what we reference as the servant's mantle. 
And it's a specially prepared towel made possible even by folk in your church in the cross-stitching of that message, which is then affixed to a very nice towel that is draped over the arm of every graduate as the concluding part of our graduation ceremony. And by many graduates' testimony, is far more important to them than their diploma that they receive. And I have the privilege now, after these years of doing it, 34 years of doing this as president there, I can tell you it's something that I've watched in places all around the world portrayed on an office wall or portrayed in a living room setting or somewhere a person's reminder that they were trained to serve. And that occasion in John 13 where Jesus takes up a towel and washes the disciples' feet was an illustration of humility. Do you know that the cause of world missions mandate illustrated by feet is a reminder of humility. Can you fathom it? God lets us be His messengers. Our feet get to take the gospel to people who need the Lord. Amazing. I sometimes say it this way. God risks His reputation on critters like you and me. I'll say sometimes to the students at Appalachian, maybe some kind of a reminder, some kind of a mild rebuke. You know, that's what you have to do sometimes when you're really caring for people. And I'll say something like this. i say, you might be glad you're not in my family because you wouldn't want to put up with me all the time. And then when they get happy about that, I say, by the way, I'm glad you're not in my family. <laughs> but the truth is this. When you have a heart of humility for people, you care about them. And fathom it, God lets us serve Him. Isn't that amazing? Feet remind us of humility. Not only about humility, but feet also remind us, secondly, if you will, of mobility. Say that word with me. Mobility. One more time. Mobility. Our feet are the means whereby we rec- regularly move. <laughs> We find ourselves, you know, walking. We find ourselves, you know, exercising a movement from place to place. The gospel message around the world needs to be taken to them. Feet are a reminder that we've got a task and we've got an instrument to do it. Probably that's the most likely reference in this verse to what the uh, prophet Isaiah had in mind. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring. And it's the mobility of the message. We're taking it to them. I'd like to give you this reminder also about that mobility. Do you know that that mobility is an exercise of faith? My wife and I have been privileged to have five children, all of whom are married now and have provided us with 18 grandchildren. The the 18th one hasn't yet been seen, but I consider that child still a grandchild because I believe that life begins at conception. And if that doesn't suit you, you're wrong. But at any rate, all that's... (laughs) So we've got one that's going to be born. The 18th one will be born in April, Lord willing. But having said that, Throughout the years of those children of ours, and now these grandchildren growing up, I love that stage where they come to the point that they're beginning to walk. Some of the cutest moments, some of the most tragic moments, daring moments, whatever. But you know a child, when they learn to walk, you don't think about this after you've learned to walk. None of you came in this morning unless you've had some illness recently. We were having to you know, measure your steps. But you just charge right in, you just walk. You don't even think about it. You don't even watch your feet. But you know, a, a, a child that's learning to walk, they, they taught her something like this. They, you know, they said, okay, foot, hold me up. Okay, foot, move forward. Okay, foot, go down. Okay, foot, hold me while this one moves. Now, they don't say that, but that's sort of the sequence of their process. And with that is a wonderful lesson on faith. 
By faith, they trust this foot. Why they by faith move forward, not knowing for sure where that foot's going. Do you know that mobility in this gospel message is an act of faith as well? And so feet remind us of humility. Feet remind us of mobility. But then thirdly, feet remind us of nobility. Would you say that, please? Nobility. That's a description of someone that's important. That visit that I talked about to England, Peter. My wife and I had the privilege, as I mentioned just in passing to you, of going to that military tattoo there in London. It's an event that was a, a celebration of England's military history. And as I was sharing it with Peter last night, I said the one thing that was missing in their review of their history militarily was they didn't talk about the War of 1776 for some reason. But having said that, it was a wonderful occasion. It was an event that, you know, was multiple nights in, in viewing. And each night we learned as we got there, we, it wasn't on our original agenda to visit, schedule of uh, just touring. We found out about it once we got to London. And so each evening they had what was called the, the celebrity of the tattoo, the person that was famous for that night. And so we bought tickets not knowing anything about that. And we found out the night we selected was the night that the queen was gonna be there, of all things. My wife and I were just ecstatic with excitement as we anticipated this. We got into the, to the arena and went through the checkpoints and all that. Got to a seat that we were assigned to and, and found ourselves, lo and behold, in a setting where you know we were there early enough. We're looking at the program and talking away. There was a gentleman about two rows in front of us all by himself. And I guess he detected this, you know, loudmouth American tourist behind them. But uh, we were, you know, just talking away and excited. And, and he turns around and said, would you like me to explain what's going to happen? I guess he sensed our ignorance. And so we said, sure. He proceeded to say, the queen's going to come right down here. And he pointed just in front of where we were to an opening in the fence. He said, she's going to walk right up here. And she was going to be walking within, what I just say respectfully, spit distance. Now... Didn't spit, but I'm just telling you. And said, going to go up there to a booth. And join her husband who's already going to be up there. You know, he's worthless. I mean, it's her. And so it's, he's already up there. Sure enough, as the evening fills up, the event begins. Lo and behold, her motor car comes right down there on the field. She gets out in her lime green outfit with a big lime green broad-rimmed hat like she's famous for. And walks right up there. And we were within spit distance of the queen. I'll never forget it. Now, after that week of just seeing things in London, the rest of that evening is not important at this point, we then drove around for two weeks and stayed in bed and breakfast at different locations. And invariably, when you'd arrive at one of those locations, the first thing they want to do is show their gardens off and get you settled in. And then they say, what have you been doing? Well, we were just sort of, you know, enamored with this opportunity. So we said, well, we just saw the queen. This was the standard answer every time, Peter. Every person that we ever encountered in those settings said, I've lived here all my life and I've never seen, and here was their term, a royal. They referenced that family as the royal family. You've heard that reference. Can I just tell you something? We are part of a nobility that surpasses the royalty of England or any place. I don't know what person you'd like to say you sat next to. What person you took you know, the time to shake hands or get their autograph or ate with them? Can I tell you, there's nothing, no one that surpasses the nobility of the feet of the gospel. Fathom it. We get to represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.
your feet should remind you of nobility. Let's review. Our first word was what? Humility. Second word was? Mobility. Third word is? Nobility. Fourth illustration from our feet is stability. We talk about someone having their feet on the ground. They've sort of got their act together. They're stable. The Bible uses it this way. Feet planted upon a solid rock. Isaiah or Psalm 40, pardon me. Do you know that your feet should be a reminder of the stability? Stable in what way? First off, in the fact that this message that we share is never going to be replaced or surpassed. No upgrades. No new models. No new devices. I promise you, the gospel is with a stability that you can count on. When you offer the gospel to someone, nothing will ever surpass it. That's stability. An aspect of stability also that I think is appropriate is to say, how stable are you in the gospel? Are you someone that we can count on to be faithfully living out the gospel through your life? Demonstrating the gospel through your life? Proclaiming the gospel through your lips? You see, feet ought to remind us that we ought to be stably and consistently serving God in this cause of world mission mandate. Stability. There's one final word I want you to remember from this illustration of the world mission mandate, and that is celebrity. Say that with me. Celebrity. Don't we live in a crazy celebrity-driven world? I'm not suggesting that any of you should have followed this, and if you did, I'm not accusing you of wrong, but would you ever have imagined that something as simple as a misgiven award would ever create such turmoil? Give me a break. All for a piece of junk. No, celebrity. We have a celebrity crazed culture. But can I tell you, as a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate celebrity. I'm not cheapening Jesus to some famous person. He is far more than any person you could ever offer or want to be around. Our feet should remind us of celebrity. We will bow before him. We will worship him. We will throw our crowns before him. He is the celebrity that we should exalt. And our feet should remind us of celebrity. Would you review those five illustrations symboled? First off was humility. Second was mobility. Third was nobility. Fourth was stability. Fifth was celebrity. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring the gospel of good peace. That illustration is a powerful one Jesus gives to us. But can I tell you, its power is essentially dependent upon this second thought. Not only the illustration of our world mission mandate, but number two, the implementation of our world mission mandate. Implementation means we put it into practice. We can have all of those illustrations we want, but if we don't do something with these feet, we have failed. So I take you to a New Testament passage. Would you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, please? And in these verses that are so familiar because of their identity with the armor of the Christian, I want you to see the importance of 
this implementation of world missions mandate. If we're called upon to go into all the world and preach the gospel, this is not an option, this is not an alternative, this isn't a good idea, this is a mandate. We must. In the context of Ephesians chapter 6, we find this delineation of the fact that we're in a battle, we're in a warfare. And so the armament is given to us, and someone has wisely described the breakdown of this chapter this way. They'll say that the defensive components of our armor are given for us in the first part of the chapter, going down through about verse 16. And then beginning in verse 17 to the end of verse 20, we have the offensive components of our armor. Defense, keeping the enemy from scoring. Offense, we're going to score on the enemy. And so with that backdrop, I'd like you to just see, and for a moment, I'm going to pick up in the middle of the reading of that passage in the listing of those items of the armor. Uh, would you join me as we look at verse 15, where feet are referenced again. And we're going to read down through verse 20. Stand with me, please, out of reverence to this portion of Scripture. Would you do that for a moment? And we're going to follow through the reading of verses 15 through 20. And then I'm going to just share some very brief thoughts on the parts of this implementation that we want to see from this portion of Scripture. Ephesians 6.15 says, And your feet, think of it now, humility, mobility, nobility, stability, celebrity. Your feet, your feet shod, that means put on your shoes. With the preparation, preparation there meaning the, the availability, the readiness, the, the adeptness, the opportunity. You are primed and ready to go. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked or the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, Paul says, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which, for the gospel's sake, I am an ambassador in bonds, that in this I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you. you may be seated. Now briefly in these verses, particularly from verse 17 onward, I'd like you to just trace with me these four parts of the implementation. We saw the illustration, now the implementation as we see it. Note first of all, the part number one of this implementation in verse 17 is this word, salvation. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. The cause of world missions mandate must begin with an awareness of the understanding of salvation. This begins with the thought of take in this verse. It's not the usual word that's used in the rest of the passage when it talks about taking the helm or taking the shield of faith, etc. The take in verse 17 is literally more translated receive. And so the thought I want you to capture is it's a gift. Salvation is a gift from God. Salvation, that gift that He gives to us. We don't take it because we you know, own it or have it. No, we receive it because He gives it to us. For by grace are you saved. Grace alone, we sang a moment ago. Not of yourselves, the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So the first part of our message or our challenge in this world missions mandate is salvation. A gift from God. I'd like to pause here and with genuine intent 
say it's possible that you've come this morning as one who's not ever trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe you've come for a long time and you've just you know, tried to fool people that think you're saved. Maybe you're a first-time visitor searching for satisfaction in your life. I'd like to just encourage you to pause and listen very personally. If I could just be with you alone and talk with you, I'd talk something like this. I'd love to tell you that Jesus loved you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. And yes, it's your sins that separate you from a holy God. God in his holiness can have nothing to do with sin. And all mankind are sinners, not because they sinned, but because they were born sinners. But God in his gracious love and mercy wanted to extend opportunity for man to have access to God, have fellowship with God. So he sent his only son to pay the price that was necessary to care for my sin and yours. Jesus came as our substitute sacrifice and his blood was shed on Calvary's cross, not just to be a great example or not just to be a martyr. Not because he was a victim of violence of his day. He was there by the appointed act of God's wrath against sin. And he became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no removal, no remission of sin. So my dear friend today, if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you can never get to God. In fact, the Bible says you're on another pathway called hell. And today it's your opportunity to turn your heart to the provision of a gift given to you called Jesus Christ as your Savior. The one who paid the price through his blood shed on Calvary, his life given. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was there on that cross, as he died, he was then buried in a tomb. And you might find yourself just touched with that tenderness of testimony, but the truth is, he rose from the dead. And aren't we glad? Huh? I hope the rest of you are too. Yeah, what a great blessing. He rose from the dead. What's that all about? It wasn't just some kind of a phenomenon to arrest attention. You see, death is the most evident proof of sin. There are lots of sins, all of them wrong. All of them will separate us from God. But the truth is, death is the ultimate of sin. When Jesus rose from the dead... He proved and demonstrated that he could conquer no matter what sin you might have faced. If you've excused your eligibility for salvation because you say, I've done this or I've done that or I could never forgive myself or God could never. Can I just tell you, Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. He can take care of your sin. Salvation is the starting part of our implementation of the world mission mandate. It's a gift from God, but it's also that gift which is described as not only a gift, but with this goal. What's the goal of salvation? It isn't just simply to rescue us from hell. The purpose of salvation was to totally change us. That's why it's the helmet of salvation. You see, the head is the most essential part of our body. 
You can function without some parts of your body. I had a father-in-law who lost a hand as a 19-year-old in a corn picker accident, went through the rest of his life working harder with one hand than most of us do with two hands. But guess what? He lived without a hand. But I promise you, we won't live without a head. That is the essence of what we are. And when we're saved, I don't mean to try and identify just one part of our body that gets saved. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus, but it's the essence of what we are in our minds, our brains. And you say, oh, that doesn't make sense. I thought we got saved in our heart. And please note this respectfully and honorably. Heart and mind in the Bible are most usually synonymous. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so don't ever suggest that I'm saying you only save your brain. But the truth is this. This is the essence of what we are. And so the goal of salvation is to forever change a person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. It's not just rescued from hell. It's to change a person. And today, my friend, if you've never come to the arresting work of God's changing redemption, I beg of you, do it today. Salvation. A gift with the goal of a difference. But there's a second part to our gospel mission mandate. Verse 17, would you look there again? It says, take the helmet of salvation. And then it says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. First part, salvation. Second part, Scripture. Scripture. Do you know that the gospel mission mandate is all about the Bible? It's all about the Bible. I'm so thankful that we have, without any question, all that we need in the Scriptures. This is not a commercial that was purposely woven in here, though I've done it every service, so I guess some of you that have heard this multiple times think it's just sort of staged. But I can't forego this privilege. You know, I'm glad I'm privileged to serve at Appalachian Bible College. Because you know what you do when you serve in Bible college? You are investing in something that you can guarantee is going to benefit students forever. No matter what the future holds. It's not a perfect place. I still work there. But it is a special place. And I can tell you that the most important thing that you can ever pour into your child or into your grandchild or into your own personal life is the Bible. It's a sword. First off, it's a weapon that we have. Weapons sound dangerous, but weapons are beneficial in the sense of usage, and rightfully so. This sword, you know, they didn't have swords to clean fingernails, I promise you. They had swords to exercise, you know, correction and, you know, execution. You know, the sword that's described here is one that came along in the development of military history. Uh, you, you probably, some of you know this, but, you know, swords initially started out as just sort of like spears, just with points on the end. And so going into battle, you could have the privilege to sort of stab your enemy. And over time, someone decided that it would be advantageous to have one side of that metal bar sharpened. So if you didn't get this advantage, you could get this advantage. And so you could either stab him or hack him if you wished. But then over time, someone came up with this brilliant idea, and I mean this genuinely, of sharpening both sides of that. So that no matter what angle of usage you had, that weapon was valuable. You could stab them, you could you know, hack them, you could slice them. It was a two-edged sword. Now here's the marvel. Remember that verse in the scripture? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
We have a weapon here. The truth is, when you invite and, and invade someone's life with the scriptures, you have given them something that has lasting, eternal value. It's never a waste of time to study the Bible. Don't make the decision on studying on the basis of a price tag. The Bible is invaluably forever beneficial to you. By the way, don't ever worry about someone coming up with something that's going to sort of supplant it in its value. I shared this illustration in the previous service. When I graduated from high school, public school in Iowa, my guidance counselor was a very caring lady. I, I remember distinctly. I don't remember her name. That's a shame, but I don't remember her name, but just remember her being a very caring person. And so she, she arranged for all of us as seniors on an individual basis to come by her office and talk with her about our future. Senior year. When I came into her office, she'd done her homework. She'd looked at my you know, grades and transcripts and things and knew that I liked business, did fairly well in business classes. And so as she sort of talked about you know, wanting to guide me, uh, she proceeded to say, Dan, I think what you should do is you should become a key punch operator when you graduate. <coughs> now, only those that are with no hair or funny looking hair or colored hair or unusually blessed like my hair is. Now, this is my hair and it's my color. I want you to know that I didn't change it. But the long and short of it is few people know what a key punch operator is. And it's because it doesn't exist anymore. I won't give you a long detail just to satisfy your curiosity. It was at a time when computers were first coming on the scene when they were room-sized machines, you know, literally. And those things were activated by a you know, series of cards in a little tray, about three inches wide, about seven inches long, and you'd punch a series of holes in those cards, and as that was fed into this machine, the holes would activate the mechanism of that machine's operation. And so the person that punched the holes was really in charge of the machine. She was trying to offer me a great future. Be a key punch operator. Guess what? I would be unemployed a long time ago. <laughs> If that's what I was. Now, lots of those people became the next stage of computers. I do know that to be the story. But the long and short of it is, this world's future is not ever guaranteed. This scripture, this you can count on. This you can count on. Saved, salvation, scripture. Now the third we see, and you look at verse 18 and 19, and that is this. We need to have a recognition that we must have supplication. Now, that's not the common word. You'd say prayer, but it doesn't start with S. So you know why it's supplication. It's in the text also. So I'm on good turf. But the, the bottom line is, without prayer, we cannot effectively do this task. I encourage every person here that's a child of God to realize every one of us have equal access to God. I said earlier about prayer life as I was talking about the importance of that and our own emphasis there and that opportunity on our table. Prayer is such a marvelous, marvelous resource. Paul says, we must exercise prayer. Note the prayer descriptions here in verses 18 and 19. He starts by giving the pattern, praying. It's just an assumed thing. We should do it. This is the pattern that we follow. He doesn't start with anything but the assumption that we're doing in verse 18. Praying always... 
with all prayer and supplication. There's the sense of the pattern of how we do it. Constantly in prayer, in an exercise of both worship and request. The word prayer in verse 18, second time used there, is referring to our worship of God as we pray. And supplication is our request of God as we pray. It says then, in the Spirit, the pattern given to us with this power promised, in the Spirit praying. This is not some artificial language or some kind of gyrations up and down a church aisle. No, this is a recognition of that promise in Acts 1.8. Ye shall receive power, authority, prayer will be yours as you find yourself following what Jesus gives us to do. So the power of prayer and then watching thereunto, making sure we're conscientious about persevering in prayer. So the pattern is given for the power that's there for us with the perseverance in praying. And why? For this purpose, all saints. Paul then gives a little personal request, verse 19, for me. He can be bold where he was in prison. So supplication is a part of this implementation of our world mission mandate. Salvation, scripture, supplication. But then finally, verse 20. Sent, or we could say service. Sent. Verse 20 says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that in this I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I find myself marveling at the privilege that it is to be a representative for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fathom it. God risked his reputation on critters like us. That's amazing. But we have the privilege to be his ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who represents someone of greater value than they are. And in their behalf, and the scripture makes that very clear. We have this privilege as though God did beseech you by us, Corinthians says. We beg you in God's stead, in the place of God being here, you get to be his voice. I get to be his voice. Isn't that a marvelous privilege? We're sent as his ambassadors. And so the privilege is there. But there's a price to be paid, dear friends. Verse 20. I'm an ambassador, Paul says, in bonds. I'd love to spend more time on this in the sense of my burden about this particular area. But I'm extremely concerned that in our world of comfort-driven living, that we're not willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. God's work often becomes sort of an attachment to our lives. You know, attachments are things you put on messages that often don't get opened. You know, we read the email and attachments are there. If we like it, we'll read it. If we don't, we just ignore the attachments. I do that all the time. So be careful if you send me a message with an attachment. It may never get opened. <laughs> Tragically, we treat God the same way. We live our lives and he's just an attachment. Paul says here, I am an ambassador in bonds. He literally was in prison for the cause of Christ. I like to remind my heart that the very first requirement of being a disciple of Jesus was, I must deny myself. I must deny myself. I won't amplify this illustration too fully, but I shared this in the first service, not the second service. So if you talk to someone in the second service, they didn't hear this part. You can tell them you got something they didn't get, okay? But the long and short of it is this. In my line of work in academics and education, I find myself deeply burdened these days with a practice that I think has some value but has been inordinately exercised in ways that demonstrate this unwillingness to sacrifice. It's a thing called online education. Now before you get too hoity-toity on me, don't turn me off, listen to the rest, and then you can share your views afterwards. But the truth is this, 
You know, online education has its place. I think it's wonderful and it's access to some of the international ministry settings and things of that nature. But as a whole, listen to me carefully. Don't know any of you that are taking online classes, so squirm on your own time. I didn't know this, okay? But the long and the short of it is this. Often that opportunity of education is driven by a convenience or some type of a comfort that I want. I don't want to leave home. I don't want to pay money. I want to do it in my pajamas. You know, I want to do it when I want to do it at whatever hour of the day I can do it. I don't want to leave my job. You know, and on we go. go. Folks, listen to me carefully. When it comes to, to following and training to serve God, I believe that the very first testimony of my willingness to serve Him is I deny myself and I take up my cross and I follow Him. Now, don't get hung up on my illustration, but my point is this. This business of world mission mandate whereby I am sent is a privilege. I'm an ambassador. But there's a price to be paid and we need to be willing to sacrifice to do it. Ask yourself this question. When is the last time as a Christian that I truly exercised a sacrificial decision for the cause of Christ? You see, whatever we feel like we're foregoing or suffering, whether it's a job that's not as pain or whether it's a, you know, inconvenience of location or, you know, living in conditions that aren't the most comfortable, you know, that sacrifice for the cause of Christ registers on a thing called life. Life is about the size of a dot. And you that are older know that better than I do. But all of us should recognize life is brief. It's a dot. Eternity is a lie. It's forever. Now here's the option. We can live for the dot or we can live for the line. Sacrifice says, I have a line living rather than a dot living. But there's a third thought to this scent. And that is the purpose for it. That I may speak boldly. I encourage you today, if nothing else, to leave the service with an intentioned plan to say, Lord, this week, I'm asking you to give me a chance to actually verbally share the gospel with somebody. Speak boldly. That's the purpose with this passion. I ought to speak. Not an option. I have this obligation. I must have this passion as I do it. This morning we've sought to just remind you through the illustration of our feet and then through the implementation of our feet what this thing called World Missions Mandate is all about. I'd like you as I close to just for a moment join me in reviewing your feet. I'm going to sit down here so I can see my feet better. And I'm not going to look up to see if you literally are looking at your feet, but for a moment... I'd like to just haunt you with what your feet are saying to you. Your feet are saying, God's looking for humble people. Will you humbly give yourself? Your feet are saying, God's looking for people that are going to get involved, mobility. People who are going to exercise faith. God's looking for a recognition that my feet remind me that this task is a noble one. I represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My feet remind me that I have an important role to be stable. What I 
give is reliable and who I am should be reliable. My feet should be stable. And then this wonderful final thought. My feet should remind me that I'm part of something that is the ultimate celebration. The ultimate celebrity. In a world that distracts me to think others are important. My feet remind me only Jesus Christ is important. I dare you to look at your feet every day with that sense of reminder. How beautiful are the feet of them who follow. Will you? Oh, Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the reminders of truths that we may take for granted or maybe have not taken note of. But I pray that our feet will every day serve as a convicting, but also a directing reminder to our hearts. Lord, in this gathering, there might be folk who need to examine what their feet are doing. I pray for young people that might find their feet given to you to serve you. I pray for older people that need to review whether their feet are really laying up treasure in heaven or if they're engaged in a world that's so superficial and dot-oriented. Oh God, thank you for the privilege to be a part of a world missions mandate. Thank you for this dear church family and for all that they are seeking to accomplish for you and just the impact of this weekend even in my life. Oh God, bless them. May we leave here today determined that our feet are going to remind us every day about what we're supposed to be doing. We need your blessing. For Jesus' sake I pray. Amen.